Okay, today we're going to finish uh, Revelation chapter 15. We'll pick up with verse 5. We'll read through verse 8. And it occurred to me that since this is the last <clears throat> Bible study of the year, we won't really have time to actually get into the bowls of wrath. But this is a good um, it, this is this is a good preliminary to it. So let's read verses five through eight, which is the end of the chapter. Uh, after this, I looked. And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden uh, sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues uh, plagues of the seven angels were finished. May God richly bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now we close out last week by looking at the scene of worship in verses 1 through 4 that serves as a preliminary to the bowl visions. We called attention to the fact that the temple of God is, um, as described here, showing, or the people of God, in the presence of God, singing songs of Moses. And the reason for the songs of no Moses, no doubt, is as a parallel, to make the parallel between the Egyptian exodus, uh, and the people being delivered from, from Egypt and the deliverance from the beast that the people of God experience. So they sing the song of worship or the song of, of, um, of Moses as they are celebrating the ultimate victory over the beast. And uh, there's one more point that I would like to make in reference to that scene of worship in those first uh, four verses. And that's uh, the closing and the opening lines of the Song of Moses, uh, or the, the Song of Praise that, that we see here. And the opening line, as we see it in, um, in, verse, in verse 3, the opening line of the song that they sing is, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. And the closing line, is uh, in, in verse 4 is for your righteous acts have been revealed and really and we're going to come back to some of this in a moment with some points of recapitulation but this is really a good summary and an explanation of human history with all of its difficulties and with all of its complexities and with all of the things that are experienced the deeds that occur in human history are within the uh, or within the whole created order are according to the sovereign rule of the almighty God and in doing so uh, in, in these things being according to his will they are also part of him revealing his righteous acts his righteous acts in uh, judgment as well as his righteous acts in salvation.
So all of human history is moving towards that climactic event. And the things that occur within the, the boundaries of human history are the revealing of the righteous acts of God, the righteous acts of his salvation, and the righteous acts of his judgment. And that's what those, that, that dualism is what closes out human history. And we'll, like I said, we'll come back to that, to, to some of those issues when we get to our points of, of recapitulation. So in this latter part of uh, the vision, uh, in verse 5, it resumes really the, the uh, activity and the presence of the angels who are actually introduced in verse 1. In verse 1, we are told of these angels who bear the seven bowls of the wrath of God. But in, and so verses 2 through 4 are really sort of an aberration, almost parenthetical. But the, the whole point of, of, of the chapter is to prepare us. Let me go back to verses uh, to verse 1. The whole point of, of the chapter kind of centers around this. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues that are the last, uh, that which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. That's the, the purpose, to introduce us to these angels. So we see them in verse 1, but then in verses, the, the following verses, it's this scene of worship from the people of God. So verse 5 kind of resumes the description of the angels that are introduced to us in verse uh, 1. And this is similar, um, it's, it's similar in context to the transition into the seals, uh, the vision of the seals as well as the trumpet, because in, in each of those situations, what is about to be revealed begins in the sanctuary. So it's the sanctuary of the heavenly temple. So we'll look at three things, and then I want to give some points of, of recapitulation that captures this whole section from chapters 14, uh, that includes chapters 14 and 15. So here's the first thing to note. And you look at their appearance or their attire in verse 6, they are said to be clothed in bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And this is similar to the vision that Daniel has in Daniel chapter 10 of the Son of Man. And we've indicated before that some of the descriptions of some of the angelic beings, they do portray some aspect of the, the Son of Man. And that's because they serve as his representatives. So these angels are, in appearance, they are similar to what Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 10 concerning the vision of the Son of Man. The second thing to note about them in verse 7 is that each of the seven angels are given a bowl which constitute the full wrath of God. And there is a sense of finality to this, that everything that has been seen in the, the previous cycles are the progressive unveiling of God's wrath and judgment in the earth. So with these seven bowls of wrath, it's not necessarily different events, although the end is, is portrayed in a, in a specific way. But this is, this is the final vision that John will get 
of these progressive events that take place within the created order. What follows from there uh, is, is really the actual events that will lead up to the final judgment. So it's not, at that point, uh, when, when we pick up with the fall of Babylon, uh, the language is going to be different because then it becomes uh, judicial and it's a final act of judgment. And it's not saying when this will happen, but the point is all of the, everything that's seen with the seals or behind the seals, because when we speak of the seals, the, the seal visions, that really re refers to the scroll. So it goes from writing to the sound, the trumpets, and now to the bows of wrath, all of them portraying overlapping events. And in the mix of all of this, you have the activity of the dragon as he animates the activity of the two beasts. And then you see all of the constituent parts playing together in their continual rebellion against the sovereign God and against his people. So these angels with the seven bowls of wrath are simply saying or are being used to portray the fact that all of these things are plagues. And the language of plague is very important because I think earlier we pointed out that the events that occur and reoccur are portrayed really in terms of, of plagues or curses, covenant curses. This is God's covenant curses against the created order, against man, because of his rebellion, and, and therefore God is, is purging. So these bowls of wrath constitute, and it's interesting, it's seven, the completion. So this is the completion of, of the bowls of wrath. We saw that language of finished uh, in verse 1, and we will see it again in verse 8. So each of the seven angels are given a bowl as they are dressed in, in images or in, in uh, garb that reflects the Son of Man and the bowls of wrath or the plagues that they, um, that they have or that they represent are an expression of the judgment of the Son of Man against the earth. And of course, when we speak of the Son of Man, we speak of the Messiah. And as Paul points out in his sermon on Mars Hill, God has chosen one man by whom he will judge the earth. So the activities of the Son of Man is an, ex an execution of the judgment of God. The third thing that we see is these angels, as, they, uh, as we see them in the sanctuary, each one given a bowl representing the full wrath of God. The third thing that we see is once they are given this bowl, God's glory and power fill the sanctuary with smoke and no one is able to enter the sanctuary. Now this obviously if you are familiar with Old Testament history uh, there are two events that, that come to mind here. Uh, one is the consecration of the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40 when Moses is finished constructing the tabernacle and we are told that in that period of, uh, or in, uh, once they are completed with the construction, that God consecrates the, the, the or, and, and he consecrates the, the sanctuary of the tabernacle by his glory filling it. And his glory with smoke 
fills the sanctuary to such a degree that no one was able to go in and minister. The second place where we see this is the consecration of the temple when it was completed by uh, Samuel. And the same thing, and that's in First, First Kings chapter 8, which, by the way, is probably the point of reference when um, in, in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah goes in the year Uzziah died, and, and uh, it's, it's a similar thing. But, but the glory of the Lord fills the temple. Now, in this reference here in, in uh, Revelation, it, it's very specific. The glory and the power, the glory and the power of God fills the temple to the point that no one is able to enter uh, the sanctuary. And this ceremony, this ceremony of these seven angels receiving the bowls of wrath, uh, these it, it indicates that the plagues of God, uh, the, the plagues that are, are the plagues of God portrayed in these bowls, is a matter of God's final holy judgment against the earth or within the earth. So this is this is God's. God's holy judgment, and it does two things. On the one hand, it purges and just and, and in judgment. So the holiness of God, uh, in various places in the, the prophets, it speaks of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. Well, the glory of the Lord filling the earth means, among other things, that he will remove anything that is unholy. So this, this, this portrayal of the fullness of God's glory where no one is able to enter into the sanctuary is equivalent to God's holiness being as such that that which is unholy is unable to stand. That was Isaiah's um, concern in Isaiah 60. I've seen the glory of the Lord. You know, I'm, I'm flesh, I'm, I'm, I'm wicked, and, and no one can see your glory and live. And so this glory that, that fills the, the sanctuary is, is symbolic of the glory of the Lord in judgment and purging or purging judgment that will purify the earth. But the second thing that, or, uh, the second thing that it portrays is God's purification in redemption. He purges the earth, his holiness purges the earth in judgment, but it purifies in redemption. And once again, Isaiah is a good point of reference there because when Isaiah sees the temple filled with the glory of the Lord and he says, woe is me, I am undone. And the Lord sends the, 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 the angelic beings to take coals of fire from the, the uh, or coals from, from uh, the altar of the Lord and purge the lips of Isaiah, indicating that he's been purified. And that's part of uh, what's behind the, the purifying of the temple and the purifying or the consecration of the, uh, of, of the, uh, of the uh, tabernacle that the holiness of God is as such 
that man, by virtue of our fallenness, are not able to be in his presence. So what God does both with the tabernacle and with the temple says, number one, I'll meet with you here and I will purify you ceremoniously so that you can be in my presence in a ceremonial way. And that ceremonial, being in the ceremonial presence of God indicates God's union and fellowship with those who do not deserve to be in his presence. Let's not forget that the sin of Adam and Eve caused them to be cast out of the garden. And the reason they're cast out and what takes place as a result of their fall is that they themselves are impure and they have brought impurity into all of the earth. So in redemption, what God does is his holiness purges in judgment all of those who are not able to stand in the presence of God as the Lord tells Moses, no one can, no man can see my face and live. Why? Because man in his fallen sinful state cannot stand before the unbroken presence of the glory of God. So therefore, God portrays his purging judgment that will come forth from the sanctuary. But his glory is not only purging in judgment, it purifies. And the purifying effect of God's holiness is the redemption of those who don't deserve to be in his presence. So that's what we see with these angels. They are, they are in the presence of God. And again, uh, that closing verse is worth rereading. <clears throat> As they stand, it says, uh, and, um, and the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Well, this leads us to our, our points of recapitulation. And it's helpful, especially working through Revelation, to have those points of review to connect all of these dots so that we don't get lost in the details of any particular vision or try to put times and dates on some of these issues. So I want to look at four things, uh, but let me just give this overarching statement uh, concerning what we see from chapters 14 and 15. As we indicated, this section, which actually begins in chapter 14, verse uh, 1, sets forth a number of important truths that contextualize human history as we move towards the terminating point. The terminating point is that, that final display of God's purging holiness as well as his purifying holiness so that we can go into the temple in essence and worship him. So what we see in, the, in bracketed between chapter 14 verse 1 and chapter 15 verse 6 is what contextualizes our being able to deal with all of the other things that take place. So let me just unfold those things in, in four parts. Here's what, what's captured in that between those brackets. One is that the people of God who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb 
and who are sealed by the name of the of, of God and of the Lamb. They are the people of God. And in a sense, there is protection. But here's the thing that we want to focus on. They presently celebrate the final victory of the Lamb over the dragon and the beast. They presently celebrate that. That's what we see in chapter 14 in that song of worship uh, and, and the emphasis on the 144,000 who were sealed by the name of God. That's what we see in the scene of worship in the first part of chapter 15. The people, and, and in the, the, song of, uh, the song of Moses, the people of God who are sealed by the name of God and the Lamb, who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, presently celebrate and live in light of the victory, the final victory of the Lamb over the beast. We get a sense of that even in some of the epistles when it speaks of, of in, in Colossians, for instance, when Paul says that Christ has taken all of the authorities that were against us and he has trampled them under his feet. And so we, we serve, we live in light of, and we worship in the spirit of the final victory of the Lamb, even though the final victory is yet future. So the content of our worship and the basis of our daily living is that we celebrate the final victory of the Lamb and we celebrate and we live in light of the final victory of the Lamb. That's what Paul means again in, in, in Colossians when he says that you are seated with him in heavenly places, that your life is hidden. That's what he means in Romans chapter 6 where it says that we are, we are raised with him. So we are seated with him. And so, in a sense, we celebrate. And we, in, in our worship, we celebrate. There's, a, there's something about the already that we celebrate in our worship. In our daily living, it is horizoned by the fact of his final victory, even though it's still future. And part of the reason for that is really because the, the, of the, the resurrection of Christ is the certainty of everything else that is yet unfolding. So, so therefore, the first thing that we see bracketed between chapters 14 and 15 is these constant scenes of worship are used to reinforce among the people of God that right now, as we are sealed by the name of the Father and of the Lamb, and right now, as we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we celebrate his final victory. We live in light of his final victory over the beast or the dragon and the beast and everything that is evil, even though, in a sense, it's still future. Here's the second thing. This is a critical truth that needs to be reinforced. This, and when I say this is a critical truth, that we presently celebrate and live 
in the light of the final victory of the Lamb. This has to be reinforced because the reality of our present experience includes living in a cursed creation and being subject to persecution and attacks from the dragon and the various sources that he uses. And what he aims at is causing us to become distracted and discouraged and even to become distrustful of the final victory of the Lamb. So this, what's critical, this, this critical truth, and that's why I think one of the reasons, that's one of the reasons I think that these scenes of worship that portray the final celebration are scattered throughout the pages of Revelation as you go through these events because what we don't see is our present position in Christ. And it's hard for us to see that because we're in these bodies that are perishing. The people of God will be some the people of God in the church of Christ will be on this earth as everything that's contained in the visions of, of, of the seals and of the, uh, the the trumpets and even the bowls of wrath. We will someone, maybe the Lord will call us home before individually, we may be called home before it happens. But before the Lord comes in, in final judgment, there will be Christians. We will not be raptured away. We will be here when all of the bowls of wrath are poured out. We will be here when all of these things take place. And as they take place, which includes the persecution and attacks of the saints, it would be easy for us if the only thing that we depended on is what we see in our own experience, then we will lose trust. We will become distrustful of the promises of God because we'll become discouraged by our external circumstances and we will be distracted from our service and our duties. So this message of celebration, which should be the centerpiece of our worship, God's, the worship of God's people has a transcendent element to it if it's to be true worship. And what I mean by transcendent is that the worship, whenever we gather to worship the triune God, we are worshiping everything that God has given to us in Christ, including his victory over Satan, his redemption through his blood, and we celebrate as if we are in the very presence of God himself and the angels. And that truth should help us. And it, should, it, it needs to be reinforced because the truth is we go through the valley of the shadow of death. And even when our suffering is not a direct effect of us being persecuted, as some Christians are in other parts of the world, there are so many things that we will experience living in a cursed creation that if we only depended on what we see, we would lose hope. So the worship of God's people, the communion table of the Lord, connects us to a reality 
that is greater than our individual personal experience. The way Paul expresses it at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and then leading into 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is he says that we, we, we don't lose hope, he says, even though our outward man is perishing, our inner man is being renewed day by day. And so we have a greater hope of glory. But the reality of the outward perishing man, thats if, if that's all we saw, we would lose hope. But our hope is in something more than what we see. Because our hope is in what has been accomplished on our behalf and what God is or on our behalf by the Lamb. And therefore, whatever God is doing in human history, it does not disturb what he has given us through his son. So this is the truth that needs to be reiterated uh, because this is what strengthens us and this is what encourages and comforts us. But here's the third thing. For those who dwell on the earth and are presently marked by the beast until the end actually comes, there is time for you to repent. You might be marked with the beast, and that's one of one of many reasons I push back so hard against these um, corny ideas of what the mark of the beast is, as it's as if it's a, a physical mark or a permanent mark. The mark of the beast, whatever it is and however it, it plays itself out does not have to be a permanent mark. It's no different from us who were born in, in, in trespasses and sins and following the course of the prince of this world and being and doing the bidding of the evil one. It's no different for them. That's what we were, but God by his mercy called us to uh, the grace of the gospel. So here's one of the things that's made clear. We saw that in uh, the previous chapter that even though right now you are part of those who are who dwell on the earth and you are marked by the beast until the final end there is time for repentance and here's what repentance looks like in this context because repentance literally means to turn so in this context repentance means you have an opportunity to turn from the beast and 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 turning or turn from the beast as an object of adoration or as the source of purpose and meaning in this world that's what marks you because in your fallen state you see you define yourself and you define the world apart from what God has revealed. And the beast is the one, the, the dragon is the one who has given you an artificial sense of purpose. The dragon is the one who has given you an artificial sense of ultimate meaning. But you have an opportunity until the Lord returns in final judgment. You have an opportunity to repent. 
And so repent would be to turn from the beast as an object of adoration and as the source of meaning and purpose and ultimacy and to turn to the lamb and recognize that it is only through the lamb that you have a real sense of human purpose. And it's through the Lamb that you would recognize what the real purpose is for your existence. And therefore, he would become the object of your worship and your adoration. And the means by which you turn to the Lamb is to embrace the eternal gospel. You can't turn to the Lamb through any other means. And you can't really understand your purpose in the world outside of him. You really can't understand the world itself outside of what God has revealed through his son. So for those who right now are sealed by the lamb, chapters 14 and 15 are given to remind you that what God has given you in Christ allows you to celebrate his ultimate and final victory even though it is still future. And let that shape you. Let that be the, the cornerstone of your worship. Let that be the, the lens through which you enter, engage the rest of the world. But also it says to you who are now identified as being those who dwell on the earth, you don't have to stay there. Until the Lord returns, there is the gospel message. And those that he gives ears to hear, he says to hear this message. This eternal message is that instead of finding your purpose in the beast, look to the lamb. Here's the fourth and final thing. All of these events, all of the events that, are, that will be portrayed in the uh, bowls of wrath and the plagues, all of these events, including the conflict between the dragon and, and his, off or his offspring or his seed and the seed of the woman, is according to the sovereign purpose of Almighty God. All of these events are the righteous acts of God. So all of human history, Whatever else happens is the unfolding of the righteous acts of God. And what we will see in the, the visions of the bowls of wrath, because the language is so dire, the bowls of wrath, the bowls of plague, it would be easy to say, oh, okay, God is going to ratchet it up, or these are separate events. There is a sense in which, especially as it moves towards the final act, that obviously there will be an intensifying of what is already in place. But the, the point is, and that's why I think you probably have it described in such a diverse way, is that God is acting in human history, unfolding the two things that we spoke of earlier. And that scene at the end of chapter 15, with him filling the temple with his with with smoke the smoke of his glory and of his power 
And if that heavenly temple or sanctuary is, is symbolic of the sanctuary of, of God on the earth, then what that means is God is purging the earth of all of that which is unholy in judgment, even as he purifies those who are unholy and therefore unworthy to be in his presence so that they can be in his presence. And those of us who are presently sealed and presently call upon the name of the Lord as we are covered by the blood of the Lamb, we are protected from the purging wrath of God that comes forth out of the sanctuary. That's our hope. And that's our help. As we prepare to close, let me remind you, as I said at the beginning, that this is our last Bible study for uh, the calendar year 2020. But what we will do is uh, we will record a series of, or a few, not sure how many, but there will be brief devotional studies that will be available not on the church app, but directly on the church website. So we encourage you, uh, even after next week, that you'll be able to go to the church website. And um, however many there are or will be, there will be some devotional uh, messages that we will brief, very brief devotional messages that will be available. Uh, let us remember one another in prayer as we go to the Lord. Our God and our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, thanking you again for your grace in him and thanking you for the reminder that even though our circumstances may be difficult at times to digest, those who are sealed by your name and the name of the Lamb, those who have been purged by the blood of the Lamb, that we live in light of, the victory, the final victory that has yet to be revealed, but we know that it's done. Help us to trust you in spite of our circumstances, that we would never be found uh, concerned about whether or not you love us, because we know you love us, because you've given us your son. Strengthen us as we go through the difficult days that are portrayed, uh, even in your word plagues and the curses that we experience by living in a cursed creation. Give us the assurance that we are your people and there is nothing that we can experience that will change that reality. We do trust that you, by your grace, would also bring those who, have, who are now identified by the beast. We pray that we would be strengthened to be the, the heralds of that gospel, that eternal gospel that will cause them to turn from the beast and to turn to the lamb, not only for the source of meaning, but also for the redemption of their souls. Thank you, Father, for your words, and we pray that we have been clear and careful in handling it. And we do trust that you, by your spirit, would give us the ability to not only comprehend these things, but to integrate them into all of our thinking as we live daily for your honor and for your glory. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.